0: Morning, everyone. Evolutionary.org. Hardcore podcast coming your way. This is episode 128. Today we're doing Chris Dickerson, who is a Mr. Olympia champion from the early 80s. Steve Smee here in the mobster joining me. What's up, buddy? How you doing?
1: Well, this is a good one. Some some background and and plenty of in-depth stuff. And he's another person that's had to overcome a great deal to become a Mr. Olympia and, and be a uh, respected bodybuilder as he is today.
0: So Chris Sigerson, guys, uh, one of the bodybuilders who won Mr. Olympia one time only. So he joins a you know handful of guys who did it. The next year after he won Mr. Olympia, ironically, Samir Banu also, also became a guy who won it only once. So you know, we've seen throughout the Mr. Olympia, we've seen Arnold dominate it for years. We saw, you know, Jay Cutler dominate it for years. You know, Lee Haney dominated for years, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, Ronnie Coleman, et cetera. So this is a situation where he won at one time, and there's a reason for that. Um, one of the big reasons why he only won one, uh, one time is his age. So we're going to talk about that in this podcast, but let's, let's first talk about Chris Dickerson, he was a social pioneer in bodybuilding. There was a bunch of factors, as Mobster alluded to, um, working against him. Number one was his race, being a black bodybuilder. As ups, as crazy as it sounds today, you know, when we're yeah. in twenty twenty one, but in those days, you know, being a black athlete was a was a big deal. Was hard. Uh, many colleges did not even allow blacks to compete to even attend the colleges in the Deep South. So, you know, I'll give you an example. In, in football, for example, they would not, in Texas and Alabama and Mississippi and these, these types of states, they would not allow black people to even play football or even be in college with, with whites. There was no integration, it was segregation. So that created black colleges that, that came in. So that was one factor working against them.
1: And just how crazy is it now looking at the, the modern uh, sporting arena where uh, your the race is nothing. It's just, can you do what needs to be done on the field? Can you, can you pump that ball? And then we're going to get you on there. We're going to give you $30 million. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. But it, in fact, when it, by the time it got to be Mr. Olympia, we'd actually already had, I believe, with Sergio Olivia a uh, 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 black Mr. Olympia. We had a long journey to get to that point and then a lot to overcome to get to that point state yeah
0: the second thing that worked against him was his height uh only listed as five foot five i've never met him in person mobster uh, we talked about pre-show you never met him in person so who knows he could be five three five four wish. So yeah. usually you know if they say five five listed you, sometimes you know they're an inch or two short in that but we see you know with um, <laughs> sure. mr olympia gosh it's a mr olympia champion right you know it's, that person's got to be tall, but again, that's another thing that we've kind of went away from a little bit, but not you know not a hundred percent. But we've seen in the modern times, most you know the successful bodybuilders are somewhere you know between five foot six, five foot eight area, somewhere in there, five foot nine. You don't see over six foot mm-hmm. tall great you know bodybuilders not. winning. But at the same time, you know, see shorter guys, you know, guys like Lee Priest, they've always complained that they've gotten the short end of the stick, uh, no pun intended, because of their, their shorter height. So, but, you know, generally in bodybuilding, you know, it's not basketball. So being short doesn't really affect you. But again, that was something, and especially in those times that did work against him because of the marketing. I mean, obviously, Mr. Olympia, oh, we're big, we're tough, you know, they want to market it. As a big, tall, all-American white, you know, a, a, a guy, they don't want to market it as, you know, a short black dude. So that was the thing. The third thing that worked against the mobster was his late start, and he, in fact, did not win the Mister Olympia till he was into his forties. And in those days, that wasn't it wasn't an old, old, old guy's game. Uh, the way it is today. Now we're seeing the older guys actually dominating and the younger guys are doing everything they can to catch up to the older guys. So that's, that's kind of funny how that's kind of changed as well. So over time, you know, we haven't used the racism, the ageism and the height uh, discrimination uh, in today. Now today, that's kind of freed up a little bit, but there's still a little bit of you know issues going on today, you know with the politics and stuff of bodybuilding. The first <laughs> thing you jump in, that worked against him too was a sexual orientation that prevented him from being himself, from coming out, and he was not out uh, when he won Mr. Olympia. We talked about that on the pre-show, so I'm going to bring you in here.
1: Uh... Now that, this I, I, in the pre-show that Steve and I uh, always do before these podcasts, we talk about certain things, and this is quite simply. I think, in some ways, bodybuilding is the the most asexual in that we we don't have certainly as many hangups as we used to. And quite simply, the best physique should win. If you in in strongman, if you the if you can lift the most weight, if you can you know put the most weight overhead or pick the most weight off the floor, that makes you a winner. And and we we rarely concern ourselves. What sometimes happened, and especially back in the day, uh, was this it's, 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 it's simple economics even if the company owner or promoter or whatever else was you know, perfectly fine with whatever political or sexual or whatever issues that were going on. Bottom line was, am I going to sell as much product? Am I going to sell as many seats? As many people come to my competition? And sometimes this would be, it, it, it held people back then. But what we see now, and we say, we, again, we're in a great many sports and especially in the last 10 to 20 years, Steve, is that people are way more comfortable with people being different, which is exactly what they should be, and way more comfortable with the idea that this is not going to affect my bottom line. This is I'm going to sell as many seats, I'm going to sell as many tickets, I'm going to sell as much product, and this guy can stand there in the front of my stand at an expo or represent my company and it's no issue at all. But I, I'm I'm a child of the '60s. My my interest in the sport was in from the '80s onwards till now, and I, I know enough of the history and the background of the sport to be able to say. With, with some certainty that they, this held people back sometimes. And I think, especially as me and you talked about, getting to the place where he became Mr. Olympia was quite the journey. And there was, I mean, just from where he came from, the the, the stuff that his mother had to deal with, even just as a lawyer, the, the fact that, just, I think you, you, you put it in an article that we're gonna link to first female black lawyer, the first person to the, of, of black color to the bar and so on. So and that's his background. That's what he's going to be. How he's going to be brought up, and yet, he achieves a great level of success with a fantastic physique. So yeah, we're we're going to get through that and, and onto the good stuff as well. Yeah, and the
0: ironic thing is, he actually had a gift for singing, and I had read yeah. some stuff that he did opera. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that, mobster. Um, but oh, it's,
1: I know. It, yeah, I, I know he's actually he's actually given. He never went professional, but I've been told. Uh, I can't think of the fella's name but I went to one of his award dinners and he this the the person I was talking to at the time has just recently passed away was a classical pianist or a pro-level classical pianist and he actually said that Chris was a professional quality classical opera singer it's something that he could have gone on to and I believe a a certain couple of uh, dinners after shows Chris has sat at the uh, piano and and uh Sung, sung a few lungfuls and has been uh, suitably impressive for those surrounding you know as in wow not only is he a great builder and, and a hero of mine but damn can that boy sing so yeah there's been there's been that that's come across so yes very very good singer. yeah
0: that kind of helped him be a bodybuilder because if he had the confidence to go in front of people and sing oh, yeah. that's not easy to do that makes bodybuilding seem easy as heck you know to be able to <laughs> Sing in front of people, and then just go pose in front of people. So that kind of gave him an advantage being on stage. He's used to the lights. He's used to yes. people looking at him, and and um, that feeling of being stared at. So, so you know, let's get into Dickerson. You know, he got into bodybuilding. It was ironic because his music <laughs> teacher actually convinced them to weight train. Um, so that's how he got into and he found he had a gift. Um, but he didn't seriously get into bodybuilding until he was twenty four. So he started really, really late. And that's, that's crazy because I started weight training when I was like 15. So, and mm-hmm. I thought I started late at 15, but he started at 24 getting serious about it.
1: Yeah, that is nice.
0: So two years later in 1965, he actually got so, you know, so, he, he had such talent for this that he finished third in the Mr. Long Beach competition. So then he had 12 straight competitions and he won every single one of them. So he quickly wow. rose to be one of the most respected bodybuilders. And he was in magazines by the late 60s. You have to remember being in magazines in those times. That's what got you, you know, popular. That's what got you people looking at you and reading about you. So it's not like the, it is today. Like nobody cares about magazines now. People care about you know social
1: being, media.
0: Yeah, you want to be a social media, obviously, and you want to put out a lot of content. So during the 70s, he had a lot of success. He won numerous bodybuilding competitions. In 79, he got into the IFBB and he targeted the Mr. Olympia. Arnold Schwarzenegger had populated Mr. Olympia during the 70s. You remember Arnold Schwarzenegger, he had a big string of wins and he uh, he put out, you know, some movies and he was really, really popular. And Dickerson at this time, he was 40 years old. So he had been working hard the past 15 years, even with his late start to get to that level. He was running out Hmm. of time. 1980, Mr. Olympia, Arnold made a last-minute entry into the event, and, of course, he won. Um, many said that that was based on popularity and merit and, you know, we've discussed that on prior podcasts. So yeah. this Rob Dickerson of the win. He finished second place. Frank Zane finished third. Frank Zane was also upset about that. So um, the next year, Dickerson fell short again, losing to Franco Colombo. And <laughs> that, again – Yes. Was perhaps due to popularity and not merit. Because remember, Columbo yeah. with with uh, was good buddies with Arnold. They had done a, a film together about body
1: the leg injury. Yep.
0: So, and that's the ironic thing was Franco was five five as well. He was a short bodybuilder like Chris. So mm. that kind of Frank uh, Columbo had always thought, yeah, I'm five five. I'm getting the short end of the stick for all for for these years because of my height. And an ironic, Chris Dickerson felt like he was getting the short end of stick as well. So they both kind of were at the same issue there when it came to height. So, uh, but uh, Colombo didn't have to worry about the racial issue though. So, you know, Dickerson was like, um, I had read that Dickerson, maybe you know more about this um, mobster, but, um, you know, Chris Dickerson was like, you know, I'm done this. I, I'm so sick of, you know, being the best bodybuilder, not winning. I'm done with bodybuilding. I quit. But I would read some guys really got in his ear and said, you know what, dude, just come on, man. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with what his mom went through growing up in Alabama. You gotta remember um, women in Alabama, black females were not able to vote um, up until like the mid sixties. You couldn't go to college. You couldn't vote. You had no chance. And his mom was able to overcome all that to become a lawyer. So I think that that pushed him. Otherwise he would have just quit.
1: I think you're correct. There was an awful lot of back and forth amongst the... If we had had Facebook and social media back between 1980 and 1984, the, the, the back and forth amongst the top professional bodybuilders at the time would have been something to see, Steve. I think it would have been... We've we we see got a podcast coming up where we talk about one particular person who's had some serious issues with, with social media. I'd imagine that the back and forth we would have seen amongst the top 10, top 20 pro bodybuilders, on the Olympia stage, and those years would have been goddamn awful, so bad, in fact, it would have probably damaged the sport. Because we're talking about, for example, with Franco winning winning in 81, with essentially what was described as, as we're euphemistically saying, bodybuilding, no legs. And in fact, he'd had a leg injury at the World's Strongest Man, he got a pair of a million dollars, thank you very much, seven figures. And lo and behold, he follows up after his buddies won it, and that's already a controversy, and here he comes and he's and that's with Tom Blacks on stage. You've got Chris Dickerson's calves are world class and his ability to pose is world class. You've got Boya Coe with those amazing biceps. So you've got a bunch of bodybuilders. Where Canada, another black bodybuilder, should perhaps could have one because these guys are arguably, they've got greater overall physique. Franco, the year that he won, had a really, really good upper body, great chest, his great back, never had the greatest arms. So you've got all these top 10 body. Frank Zane, as you said, you'd already been in Mr. Wikipedia. How is it that this person with no legs wins? So, yeah, I think you're right. I think the whole background and his upbringing drove him to say, you know what? I'm going to give it one more roll of the dice. I'm going to come out. And, and, and in fact, me and you spoke about this in a podcast for the AAU, Mr. America, when he won. He made it perhaps so that there could be no argument. I will come with legs. I will come with arms. I will pose. I will kick ass. I will have these world-class cast. And there would be no denying me and in bear it in mind, as you said yourself in, in a previous podcast, when well, we've got the 83 the, the winner making all the mistakes that he made and then finally coming in and, and being in the best shape. The and again, he's another one time winner. It was one of those, it's not a popularity contest. It's not going to be who's my favorite bodybuilder. It's going to be I'm the damn best and you're going to let me win this competition. So, yes, I have one of Yes, something Steve's mentioned as well. I think this is the background. What made him a great poser and Steve addresses this in the article, not only was the theatrical side and the operatic side, which we've already talked about, but he actually did uh, dancing, including ballet uh, as a young man and was also something of a gymnast. So in, in his way, he had a perfect kind of background and training. And although the upbringing could arguably it is described as a difficult upbringing, or certainly in a difficult time, it made him very, very good at becoming the, the competitive bodybuilder and the winning bodybuilder and a Mr. Olympia that he was, because you've got a guy with a dance and the theatrics, et cetera, that I've just talked about, on stage, like Steve said earlier on. I mean, he's able to present himself incredibly well. I, I can't think of a single time where you talk about bad skin tone or bad posture uh, he talks, the, the little bit that I've seen of him, he talks very well, he comes across in a certain particular way. And arguably, he might have even been a man out of his time, because Steve Steele touched on the social media aspect earlier on, I'd imagine that on social media now, with, with his background and everything else, he did come across an incredibly well, well-spoken, well-educated, a kind of tough, but ultimately uh, educational background, and everything else, which would make him on stage a fantastic bodybuilder. Body. And it's a shame that he wasn't born 20 or 30 years later, or or Steve said, was a little bit younger when he won the Mr. Olympia, because I think we could have seen a little bit more of this guy doing incredibly well. I will also touch on Steve changing the subject slightly, the genetics. As always, when we do this podcast, we're talking about essentially, for the most part, genetic freaks. And sorry to say, <laughs> regardless of everything else I've just been saying for the last few minutes, Chris had really, really good genetics. He's one of three, he was a triplet. I believe the, the youngest of three. And I've seen a photograph, a black and white picture of all three of them standing there, skinny runts that they were with shorts on. And they've all got great calves, They've Really, really, really good. World-class muscular calves on their 13 year old frames. So unfortunately for the guys that say he's got amazing calves, I wonder what he did, probably next to nothing. He just had those kind of calves that you God had blessed them with, and in fact, I'd love to see if there's a picture of his mum and dad, perhaps. And I'd, I'd be willing to put a couple of dollars down and say that they had good good genetics for calves as well. Everything else, mind you, he had to work really, really hard for, and, and in order to present the physique that we were familiar with, Steve. So let's
0: let's continue it. Um, so 1983, 43 years old, he won Mister Olympia. 1982, I'm sorry, 1982 Mister Olympia, he won. Yeah. Now we were debating on a pre pre-show what happened because in 83 he did not compete in mr olympia but he came back in 1984 and got 11 so from what i've read um, the only thing i could come up with from 82 was that he decided hey i want it i'm going to retire i'm 43 years old in those Mm -hmm. days 43 years old was old Um, now 43 years old is almost like the average age of the mr olympia
1: champion
0: so so things have changed but i um you know, Mobster had a couple of theories as to why he left and then in 84 he decided to come back. So, Mobster,
1: yeah, I, 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 as I said to you, I mean, it's a combination of circumstances that I mentioned earlier. on. For example, when you've had the 80, 81, and then obviously getting to the 82, and even the 83, so you've got Arnold back after it's on one win, controversial. Franco, injured, comes back, essentially in the same situation as Arnold, wins again. So that's another person hasn't won for years, although he had won previously. Chris Dickerson comes along, no Arnold, no Franco, he wins, thank goodness, with an, un, 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 you know, no doubt about it for Z. And, and then of course, we, we've got the CD83 the, the, the winner, <laughs> whose name you've mentioned earlier on, Steve, but my feeble 56-year-old brain can't remember. The long and the short of it is, I suspect it was a combination of circumstances. Did, would, would, did I get lucky winning one competition after the debacle of the previous two years? Is, am I 43? Can I, can I do it again? Who, 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 you know, I, I'd like to see a picture of him in, in 83, in 84, see what his physique looked like then. And perhaps, as we'll touch upon when we talk about the stories in a little while, maybe it was a simple case that he wasn't willing to push the envelope and do the extremes that we see now in order to keep his physique at a competitive kind of level. And something else, Steve, he'd been competing since 1966. So when you get 43 years of age, as you said, started lifting at 24, but competing since 66, to get, that's a long time on stage all the way through to 80s I'm thinking, that's 18 years, very, very quickly, 16 years on stage winning a great many competitions. And in fact, as I covered earlier on, he competed over four decades, winning, competing and winning from 1966 to 1994. And in fact, his comeback, such as it was in 94, was to come back and win the Masters Olympia. And of course, that's a competition that we're not entirely sure whether that's going to make a comeback again. It's something that guys at 44, 45, 46 years of age could do very well in. We've seen Webby Robinson win. Lou Frigno, I believe, won a competition. Chris won, i say in 94. I, I would like to see the Masters come back. And maybe when all this stuff that we're all dealing with right now is out of the way, we'll see that happen again. I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is, Steve, as as the successes of IFBB Pro, he actually competed in four different federations, doing very well in NABBA, I believe a Mr. Universe title, the AAU with a Mr. America, the WBBBG, which some of you will never have heard of, which I believe was a Dan Laurie. Uh, uh, competition running out of the Muscle Muscle Training Illustrated magazine. Again, some of our younger readers would never have heard of it. You can look this stuff up, people. And, of course, the IFBB. So, four decades of competing, four different federations, Mm -hmm. and pretty much won a high-level title all the way through those competitions. So, yeah.
0: So, let's get into a little bit of his mentality toward nutrition and then mobster you're going to talk about his training uh, for a couple minutes then we're going to get into the fun stuff the steroid talk but um you know from the stuff that i was able to research it seems like chris dickerson was more into science in his own body so he paid a lot of attention to science i think that has a lot to do with being from such a well educated family his mom you know being a lawyer uh going to college going to law school uh, not a lot of people in those days were college educated in the United States. So obviously he was in the top tier when it came to education. And obviously, if your parent is very uh, obsessed with education, then you're going to be also obsessed with education. So that may have led to his, his attention to science. So that's a little bit of a unique approach. Uh, we talk about it a lot on the forums, listening to your body. In his case, he paid more attention to science. Problem is in those days you know, science, there wasn't much science out there, uh, not much to really look into because now everything's on the internet. Now you can look up studies online. You can do all that back in those days. If you want to look up a study, you'd have to go to the library and hope that they had a book, you know, on, on this stuff or be lucky and come across some literature on this stuff, but it's not like it is today at all. So it would be interesting to see, um, how he would have done around today With the advancements we have today In nutrition and science Because if you look oh, yeah. at any sport any sport, They've come a long way From the 70s and early 80s When it comes to all these things In the NFL they used to Pound these players into the dirt No water, no nutrition Full padded practices In the heat, two a day practices They used to pound them into the dirt To make them tough they Gotta make them tough But now they don't do that in the NFL. Now, actually, it's it's ironic. The team that just won the Super Bowl, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Tom Brady would take off many, many practices late in the season and even during the playoffs. And the same with some other veteran players on the team. And that actually helped them do better in the playoffs because they got rest. So we've changed a lot of our uh, training philosophy We'll get into some of his other training philosophies mobster really quick for a minute or two and then we'll get into his uh,
1: steroids chris was one of those fortunate guys in terms of his training and i was just specifics in a second he he was ment- mentored by bill pearl and in, and in doing the pre-show research i was trying to find a, an evidence because i believe this might have been the case bill pearl was for many years and I believe still does. I believe he's still still with us and still training. And there's photographs online of his car collection and, and his barn. Now his barn's where he's got the gym. Back in the day, he had an actual gym that he could go to. But Bill was by reputation would have three and four a.m. workouts. So when most of us are still asleep in bed, Bill Pearl was pounding it down the gym. And Bill Pearl is, is himself is Indian American background. So. In fact, uh, 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 the recently dead Sean Connery, AKA James Bond, uh, when he competed in the Mr. Universe thought that Bill Pearl was a black man. So dark was his tan and with the tan on that he had on top. And of course, with his uh, Indian American background, uh, native Indian American background, believing that Bill Pearl was black, but in fact, he he, he wasn't. But uh, Chris, was mentored by Bill and I believe may have even done a few of these three o'clock in the morning workouts. What you do have with Bill, of course, is that Bill was probably one of the first serious, and as, as you mentioned just now with the science background from the nutrition, someone who kind of studied what worked and what didn't work. I believe there's also around that someone that we're talking about the Nautilus stuff. And I think Bill was asked to go and be part of the whole thing with the top bodybuilders were going to Nautilus and actually didn't want to do that because he didn't want to know Alfred Jones. There so was a man of strong opinions. And I can imagine that Chris at that time, under Bill Pearl's mentorship, was shown what worked, what didn't work. If you can come and have a 4am workout with me, we're going to put you through it and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do that. And I do believe there's actually a, a reference to the fact that Bill Pearl was very keen on helping Chris become the very high-level bodybuilder and, of course, later on, Mr. Olympia that he was. In terms of his training, and you can look at this stuff for yourself, um, not a great believer in a high rep low weight or low rep high heavy weight, which is of course how i train a practice is something in between so essentially he's taking what what worked for him was what would work for most people in terms of the eight to 12 rep range etc not a big believer in machines and of course again that just ties in my comment perhaps about bill pearl not being over keen on doing anything with arthur jones at nautilus so very much a free weights guy get under the bar get in, get in the rack if any, and I'm, I'm good my research from that time, Steve and my knowledge of the history is that for the most part, you were incredibly lucky to have a leg press or something that looked like a hack squat. Smith machines were just really making their time in the 60s and 70s. And perhaps the only machine that you would see pretty much in every gym, no matter how basic it was, was some kind of pulley, some kind of lat pull down machine. And again, I'm thinking with the barn that Bill Paul trains out of now, I believe I've seen a couple of photographs and it's very old school. We're talking about wooden pieces of gym equipment. They work, so it's not all chrome and, 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 and gloss paint or whatever else. And then something else as well, and Steve talks about this in the article when he says about patience. Now I've addressed this on the forum, Steve, as you know. And it's quite simple that a lot of our guys want to get as big as humanly possible. I want to put them 30 pounds now. I want to put 30 pounds on this cycle. No, three to, t- three to four pounds on a cycle and you'll be big in five years and in 10 years and 15 years. We've got a guy here that took 16 years to win the Mr. olympia that competed as i said over four decades with all these different federations and built himself up a pretty damn good physique but it what did not happen overnight and even if as we get into in a second the pharmaceutical side of things aided him somewhat it's putting his to use that euphemism putting his time in the gym and time on the table with a knife and fork that got him 90 percent of the way for the physique that he had, again, at his height, which Steve's addressed earlier, I don't think we're talking about a load of gear, a load of steroids to put tons and tons of muscle. I think this 16 years of hard work and nutrition is what got him to be the great bodybuilder he was. But of course, in terms of being a Mr. Olympia, it's going to add polish, and it's going it's to take him from a great physique to that next level physique that you need when you become Mr. Olympia. thief.
0: So let's get into the fun stuff, mobster, fun stuff. So 1982, he won Mr. Olympia. 1994, he got fourth overall Masters Olympia. That's very, very impressive. Let's kind of talk about the steroids he would have used leading up to 1982 versus the steroids he would have used in 1994. So we got to remember, guys, back then, um, steroid use was different. Back then, guys did not use the type of steroids we use today. A lot of them back then, they used the the four main steroids they used, primabolin, decadurabolin, provirin, and dianabol. Those were the four uh, that they used. And the the way they used them was different as well because dianabol, they would not use a lot of dianabol because they didn't have access to anti-estrogens at that time. So they would have to use a low dose of Dianabol. So we think he, in those days, you know, there's been some rumors that guys would use a handful of Dianabol, but if they use too much, they would blow. They would get a lot of estrogen. They'd run into gynecomastia, bitch tits. That was not what they wanted. So we think that these guys stuck to 10, 20 milligrams of Dianabol a day at the most, at the most. And then you throw in that Proviron, 50 milligrams a day of the Proviron. A Proviron does several things. It binds to SHBG very, very well which gives your free testosterone ratio higher. So that's another thing that we think they did. Also, it it helps with the side effects of that decadurabolin, which is one that they would have used. Now, why did guys use decadurabolin? Why did guys use decadurobolin at that time? Very, very simple. It doesn't aromatize as much as testosterone. It aromatizes about a quarter as much as testosterone. So you can use the decaduribola at a high dose and you don't have to worry about estrogenic side effects. Remember guys, in those days, the 70s and early 80s, they did not have AIs. Aromatized inhibitors weren't around. They had no way to combat estrogen. They didn't know how to combat estrogen. So if you did not combat estrogen, you would just get all these estrogenic side effects. So it kind of defeats the purpose. So we think that he used you know, a lot of decadurobolin, maybe 500, 600 milligrams a week. Primobolin was a big one. Primobolin does not aromatize into estrogen at all. It's a DHT derivative. It doesn't have a lot of side effects. It is a pol- great polisher. It would have been the best option for them to use at that time. This was before Masteron came around. So we think he probably used 400 to 700 milligrams of Primobolin. Arnold, in the, during the 70s, we think that was his favorite steroid, primobolin. So that's kind of the stack they would run. They'd run, you know, a good amount of primobolin, a good amount of decadribobolin, 50 milligrams a day of provirin, which kind of helps all around. Proviron again, the primobolin and provirin, they add in that DHT derivative effect. Decadryl Bowen's got that dihydroenanderlone effect, the DHN effect. So when you don't have enough DHT in your body, you start getting these sexual side effects happening. So the way these guys would avoid it, they knew to run Proviron back in those days. So that was their little trick because a lot of people say, oh, you need testosterone as their base. They didn't run testosterone in those days, guys. Nobody was dumb enough to run testosterone because you'd risk the estrogenic side effects. So Forget it. Forget testosterone. If you want to know what they they ran, that's those are the four steroids they ran, period. They did not mess around with testosterone or any other of these steroids that we're using today. So that's what he would have ran leading up to his his Mr. Olympia win in the early 80s. Now, fast forward into the future. Let's go from 1982 to 1994, 12 years later, mid 90s. Now, what happened in the, in the early, in, in the late 80s, steroids started getting cracked. These steroids that they were using, these pharmacy-grade steroids, weren't available anymore, okay? Um, so they would go more to underground labs. We started seeing a pickup in things like trenbolone. trenbolone. um was a big one. It started coming around, around the late 80s, early 90s. Trenbolone guys were using Parabolin, pharmacy-grade Parabolin. Once, once that went away, they would use underground trenbolone. Trembolone's a great steroid, guys. That's what guys use today. Uh, that's what makes, helps these guys get the physiques they have today. It's one of the most essential type of steroids wow. that they have. So, yeah. So, I mean, the Tremblone would have came um, by then. He would have been using Trembolone And then he would have,
1: you know, he probably, instead
0: of Primobolan. But, you know, I think a lot of these guys, they want to stick to the, the steroids they used before. So I still think he, he may have messed around with Prima Bowling. And I think Masteron would have came around. They would have started messing around with Masteron as well. It's a hardener. It's going to get you hard. And then Winstroll. Winstroll is one that they would have came in and, and started using as well.
1: Okay. Three, two, one. So, yep. yeah, I, I'm looking at the cycle as, as, as previously suggested, that we think he ran back in, in the 80s. And you know what, Steve? I think I could probably run this cycle. Uh, if only I could become a Mr. Olympia by doing so. Yeah, and I definitely agree. When, when we see what's suggested for the, for the 80s and then we, we put that with what's available today, then, yeah, for sure, I can see that he would definitely be running trend now. And to be honest, the only thing I would question and the only thing I would argue against would be, how much of a difference would it make to his physique and the classic shape that I think we could agree that he had and how much, how, how great of a difference it would make. I, I think it would change how he looked uh, in terms of his overall physical appearance. I'm not entirely sure, although I would agree that it's probably what he would do as a 90s or a 2000s onwards bodybuilder. I think it would be too much of a difference to his physique Maybe even in terms of just hardness, maybe in terms of his overall look, et cetera, et cetera. So it would be one of those fellas that his cycle worked perfectly well for him at the time. Would he run it differently now? Yes. But would he look differently? Also, yes. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things that people talk about with the, the last five or six years of the Mr. Olympia Physiques is that in some ways the guys are a little bit softer and a little more full in terms of, and That's basically the physique that's a winning competition. So that's what they go for. Versus a harder, more vascular physique, and for me, Chris's appearance back when he was winning the Mister Olympia, I think that we see too dramatic of a difference, and it's hard for me to get my head around how, how whether he would win, whether he's new shape, whether he's new look, and what's available now, and the cycles as they run now would make so much of a difference to his overall appearance that we wouldn't be talking about him as a Mister Olympia winner; we'd be talking about him as something else. He, he. he Gen- arguably, genetically, I can see him bulked up into something crazy like a Roly Winkler type physique on stage. And roly bless him, has been close, but not quite so c- cigar. And of course, with that extra muscle, with that extra kind of shape that the, the modern bodybuilders uh, cycles would provide, we'd be looking at a guy that'd be placing in the top 10, but perhaps not getting that Mr. Olympia winner he managed to get back in the day. So, yeah, I'm looking at his cycle. And we talked about this as well before, Steve. These cycles still work. Drug intake and their effect on your body hasn't changed in terms of your biology. So for me, the Primo, the Deca, the Deca, I'm a great fan of Deca. The Braviron and the Dinobol, and again, that's actually kind of low even for me. Would be I, I would probably find that I'm doing incredibly well in this cycle and. Well, I don't think it turned me into a 1982 win of the Mr. Olympia. but I i, I Christ, I'm kind of tempted to have a go just to see what how happens. Can you I these are not great strength drugs, but damn, I probably bought 10 pounds or something on this kind of cycle. So yeah, that's without the modern stuff, that's without the trend, that's without the windstroll. So yeah, that'd be very, very interesting. Now Steve. So
0: what else? Yeah, what else would you have, would do you think changed? From what he ran at 82 versus 94, besides the Tremblone, besides the Winstrel, besides perhaps the Masteron, what do you think they they also would have been running in,
1: in those I'd days? For something we something we've addressed in previous podcasts, diuretic, especially if he's running these other drugs, just to get rid of the excess water. And in terms of the last 10 or 15 years, so 2021, Psalms, the, 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 him, to, to help him with the dropping of the body fat, and getting some of the water out. Growth hormone is not mentioned on this earlier cycle. and With growth hormone, again, in fact, if you look at Chris's physique, he's kind of a little bit elbow. He's kind of almost on the cusp of someone that I don't think growth hormone was done very well on. His elbows kind of stick out a little bit. And someone on growth, especially some of the levels professional bodybuilders use now, I can see that might have changed his physique. He's a kind of handsome-looking fella. So, again, excessive use of growth hormone, especially when you're dry, you're going to see an angular look to him. In terms of the modern stuff which I was touching on just now, I can see him using psalms, and specifically cardering GW. I don't know necessarily that Ed, if, if he was doing the cycles that we've talked about. Maybe we see him doing a psalm cycle in between. Maybe we see, again, peptides. Uh, and again, with his age, 43 years of age and competing and if he carried on competing and was using some of the modern pharmaceutical uh, uh, stuff that's available, but those health healing peptides, and again, the growth hormone stuff, and the growth hormone increasing peptides as well. So, yeah, what about insulin, Steve? I don't think this is a physique that insulin would benefit at all. I can't see that. the, and, 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 the, the if, 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 if Some insulin seems to suit some bodybuilders more than it does others in terms of most bodybuilders, which we know from our conversations online on the podcast, a little bit too much body fat and a and bounce back not being great. Whereas
0: you'd have to be on a lot of HGH. Uh, the guys that are running a lot of HGH mm. now, they do run insulin because they gotta drop that blood sugar down. The mm. insulin helps them block the sorry. drop the blood sugar down from all that well, it, so, But m- I don't think in 1994, he messed. I don't think he missed around on it. Every well, monster, every guy I talked to in their 60s and 70s now who used to be in bodybuilding, mm. they still love the same steroids, they still love yeah. Deca. Well, well. They still love well, viron, right. yeah. they still love and so I think that's a, it's creature of habit, you know, if he ran those in the early eighties, I think he'd want to run them again in the nineties. And then the newer guys in the nineties that were coming around, the younger guys, they're not running those anymore. You know, guys have, have walked away from Primo, from Deca, from yeah. even Proviron, they, and Debo as well. They walked away from that. Now they want to run Winstro anivar for their orals they want to run trenbolone. they want to run lots of testosterone they never ran testosterone in the 60s and 70s so, so the you issue
1: so, the issue for me steve is and you know this from some cna members on the forum guys want to try every drug there is and see if it makes a difference to physique. whereas guys like chris is going to stand around and say why why do i change something that works so you've gone these cycles and we talk about, well, I think this is a perfect, accurate cycle for, for 80 onwards, maybe 90, up to 94, perfectly. So it worked and produced the physique that made him Mr. Olympia, the, the modern guys. And we know this, we get guys on our forums and they go, I've got this drug, we'll go out and buy something else. Buy the one you need and use the one you need to produce the physique that you want. There are guys that will add stuff in the cycles. Now you and I both know professional bodybuilders, will take long-acting testers esters out, put short-acting stuff in, and they'll manipulate things going up in the competition. But again, this is a genetic 1% that are trying to win competitions. This is not your Jim Joe, that's trying to have a six-pack. And yet you know and I know that quite often it's a combination of what they can get their hands on or trying every drug there is. And that's why we end up with uh, top professional bodybuilders, uh, Stacks, which you and I have discussed in podcasts and online, where well, there's 12 or 15 drugs in that stack. And yet two of them, that's a top professional bodybuilder. We've seen eight and nine drugs in an amateur bodybuilder. And we're talking about a gym-going bodybuilder's physique. We're not talking about even a gym-going bodybuilder's physique that wants to compete. This is just guys that wants to get in shape. So it's, it's kind of like adding stuff to a recipe that you don't need to change. If we're making an egg omelette, we need eggs. We might put some cheese in here. We might put a bit of cream in there, but we don't need to have everything in. And that's what happens sometimes. There's a temptation because it's available, and we've got great sponsors that provide you with pretty much everything you're ever going to need to try and use everything out there. I don't know about you, Steve. You've not. Tr- I, I think I actually do know. I tell a lie. I believe that you've not tried every steroid there is, but you've tried quite a few. And I know for a fact that I've probably tried about half the drugs that you have. And both of us managed to get where we want you to with have physics without using every drug known to mankind so here we're listing and he's original a of, i
0: was gonna say a lot of it has to do with you where you're at because yeah, um, yes. different regions of the world have different strategies like people in asia they don't use testosterone on their cycles no, rarely but, but people in the united states oh my god you gotta use testosterone as a, as your base or your dick's gonna yeah. fall blah, 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 blah. so it really has a lot to do with regional um you know things so someone in the middle east you know where we're going to see a lot of the top bodybuilders come from now you know we have big rami a lot of them that's that's a hotbed they have a different style of using steroids too and they also have different laws so it has a lot to do with the laws where you there's live that. the laws where i live laws in the middle east so yeah it's a, it's definitely a big factor yep
1: i think there's another argument as again if we're talking about his age so you wouldn't want to be given a guy that's of something nearly 50 years of age and still competing all the way up to 94 when he would have been what <laughs> 50-something, 50 54, 55. Do I want a 55-year-old on high-dose trend? I do not. Do I want a guy with his stature and his frame taking three or four grams of gear a week? I do not. I, and again, it's that situation again. So arguably, and it used the conversation just now, if we talk about the Asians are generally smaller than the Americans, and the Americans are comparable to us here in the UK. Different laws, as you said. It's far easier for me to get, obtain steroids uh, in a gym than it is now in America with regards to the criminal offences and the way that the the the, the Fed, the Feds, uh, the FBI, etc., treat uh, drug use. So, you're quite right in that way. But also, I think it's one of those things that's appropriate to your frame to your size your condition and your requirements. There are certain drugs that I'm supposed to have taken as a strength athlete, which I tried and didn't benefit me in any particular way. So I go back to what what I know what works, what my experiences of what works. And I'm thinking this is one of those things that if a guy is, and I think you're quite correct on what you said right at the beginning of the podcast, if he's five two five three, not even a 5'5", five, five that's claimed, I don't want him on two or three grams of gear. I really don't. And, and, and I can't see how putting him on that is going to turn him into something else beyond winning an 82 Mr olympia would he have won if he was 30 pounds heavier and if it was all muscle i don't think so would he have won if we give him the pharmaceutical availability of today not necessarily and again let's let's be realistic you're quite right in terms of what uh, athletes in different countries are using but the reality is if you know what to do you could pretty much get hold of anything you want and so the argument about drug availability, I think that's kind of BS. I think that if, you know, no matter where we are, provided we're not rubbing the police's noses in it, provided we, we, we know who can get the stuff into the country, even with the customs restrictions on Australia, for example, you can pretty even if you have to pay extra, you can pretty much get anything you want. So therefore, availability of drugs doesn't necessarily make for greater bodybuilders. And that pretty much goes back to what I said just now. Just because you can get it doesn't mean you should use it. Doesn't mean you're necessarily going to become a Mr. Olympia physique. You you this is the thing with with Chris again, putting the time, the effort, having a great mentor, coaching you incredibly well. As you said, we're having a science kind of approach to nutrition, a science and a basics, keeping it simple approach to, to training, and then not going crazy on the drugs. There's a temptation for us as, as as we do in these podcasts to sit down and go. I wonder what would have happened if, which is fine. But I'm saying in this situation, I think him with the modern pharmaceuticals available, another 20 pounds, 30 pounds heavier, he's height, he becomes an incredibly muscular bodybuilder, but not a Mr. Olympia winning physique. That's, that's, That's my take on it anyway.
0: All right, guys, Chris Dickerson, episode 128. Appreciate you guys listening. Do you want to give a little preview as to episode 129, who we're doing next?
1: Yeah, I, I, there's something. There's a guy who's a, a great bodybuilder, but God damn, he should stay on social media and keep his private life private. That's all I'm saying on this particular guy. Steve, don't forget the legal disclaimer.
0: Yes, sir. So uh, yeah, that's where we will do. Yep, we will do that for sure. All right, guys, for Steve Smee and the mobster, this has been episode 128. We'll talk to you guys next one. Have a good one. Take care. See you guys next week.
1: Ta-da.